All right, I'm recording. I'm going to read the thing. Go ahead and read the thing. On a mild February afternoon in 1981, in a small town in eastern Pennsylvania, a boy out running an errand for his mother paused at an unexpected sight. Out behind his house, at the edge of his grandmother's backyard, a wisp of steam rose through the snowy ground. The boy, concerned that his grandmother might have something burning in her yard, left the road to take a closer look. He waded through the dirty dregs of snow and the brown grass until he came to the place where the steam was pluming slowly up from a hole in the ground the size of a baseball. The boy, who was twelve years old and curious, took a stick and poked at the hole. The slush under his feet broke apart and dropped him knee-deep into the ground. The boy tried to scramble back, but his grab for solid footing only served to disturb the fragile, sinking earth further, and without warning, a pit opened up under his sneakers, dropping the boy below the level of his grandmother's lawn. He grabbed onto a tree root and clung to it for dear life as the dirt and rocks continued to shift around him. He was deep in a cloud of foul-smelling steam now, and it was billowing up so thickly he couldn't see out of the hole. And although he'd been chilly thirty seconds ago, his jacket too thin against the February temperatures, the mud sliding by his face was flesh-warm to the touch. There was a wind now, too, and it wasn't brushing across the ground, but sweeping down into the pit as though trying to dislodge the boy and send him tumbling into the darkness. With each gush of air, the pit opened a little more and the temperature increased. When the wind paused, clouds of superheated toxic steam boiled up past the now-screaming boy and up into the blue sky beyond. Deep in the earth, 250 feet underneath the surface of that chilly, pleasant Saturday afternoon, a fire was burning. It had been burning for 21 years. The boy had a lucky escape. An older cousin had heard him shouting and ran to help. He'd reached into the pit, spotted the boy dangling above the mud and steam, and hauled him out by his jacket. By now the pit was so hot, the older boy thought his cousin was on fire or had been boiled alive in the steam. Unbelievably, he hadn't suffered anything beyond a few scrapes, some ruined clothes, and a nasty taste in his mouth. Within the day, the local newspaper ran a story on the near fatality with the headline, Boy Falls Into Mine Void, Centralia Residence Irate. Thank you. That was really uh, nice. <laughs> no, it's not nice at all. This whole story makes me so furious, and we're going to enjoy getting into that. But for now, welcome to Relative Disaster, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and our best tips for surviving them. I'm Greg, Chief Anthracite Scientist for Relative Disaster U. And I'm his sister Ella, instructor in the Underground Firefighting Program at Relative Disaster University. Thanks so much for that horrifying story, Greg. <laughs> Today, we are going to be taking a look at the coal mine fire currently burning underneath the town of Centralia, Pennsylvania. And we're going to get a few things out of the way at the outset here. So one, we won't be naming any of the private citizens in this episode. That information is out there, but we're not naming private citizens, some of whom are still alive and all of whom have been greatly harmed by the fire and the government response to the fire. We will be naming public servants, such as politicians, in the course of this episode, because they are... They're responsible. Yes, and they are public servants. And public figures. Uh, the other thing is that we will be approaching this a little differently than some of our other uh, episodes, simply because this is still happening. Right. We're not talking about something that happened 500, 1,000 years ago. 
talking about something that started in 1962 and is still going now. It is certainly not our intention, nor will we treat these people as though they are stupid yes. or foolish for continuing to live in this area. If we had been treated as badly as they have been treated, um, I probably would not care to move either. Uh, for those of you listening, hoping that we're going to turn this into a little comedy podcast on how dumb the people of Centralia are, don't listen to this podcast. That's not what this is. Those people are <laughs> victims, essentially. Yes. Um, it is not their fault. They are the people. Th- this happened to them, not by them. Exactly. For now, we're not going to say their names and we're not going to make any judgments about their choice to stay. Okay. And with that said... Let's talk some background on Centralia, Pennsylvania. Ella, what's up? I'd actually like to start 350 million years ago. <laughs> we don't have to get that far that, uh, into the weeds, but I did want to mention in the late Mississippian period, the land that is now in Pennsylvania was this amazing forest. It would have been full of ferns, palms, coniferous trees, And over the next few millennia, this forest just flourishes. It grows, and it dies, and it decays, and it grows again. And huge amounts of organic matter get folded into the soil. And that organic matter becomes carbon, which becomes coal. Yeah. I mean, first it becomes peat. In the end, you have anthracite coal. Or bituminous coal. No, no, this is anthracite. This is the good stuff. We're talking about anthracite, but but it is important to, to talk about the differences between the two of them because Boy Howdy is digging into coal seam fires, a, uh, a real deep dive on not only how many of them are currently burning around the world right now, mm-hmm. but the differences between them. And basically, if, you, if you're going to have a coal fire, you really want a bituminous coal fire because bituminous coal runs in flat beds fairly close to the surface. Yes. So if it happens to catch on fire, it is much easier to dig out. And digging out is the only real good way to get rid of coal fires. (laughs) Whereas anthracite coal grows in these steeply pitched veins. You know, it'll zigzag. And the problem with that is that, for one thing, it's very hard to track where the actual fire is when it does catch on fire. But the point is, it's great coal. It's very valuable. It burns hot and it burns for a long time. Yes. I just wanted to touch briefly on uh, how flammable anthracite coal is. (laughs) How flammable is coal, Ella? (laughs) It's real flammable. Uh, It can actually combust spontaneously. Yes, that is. And that is one of the 15,000 theories of how this one got started. I find that thought extremely unsettling. Yes. This whole story is unsettling because it talks about the ground not being as safe as it should be. Yes. We think of the ground as something you can walk on and will always support your weight. And we think of fires as something you can see and run away from. Yeah. And that's not the case with coal seam fires at all. They happen out of sight. They kill you most often with the poisonous gases that they emit. Or they open up a sinkhole and swallow your house. The nice thing about anthracite coal is that it burns for a really long time. Yeah. The bad thing about anthracite coal, (laughs) if it's underground and on fire, it burns for a really long time. And it doesn't flame up. That's the other thing. We expect a fire to look like fire. 
coal fires smolder. They just sit there and get red hot. So in 1917, the First World War starts, and that marks kind of the beginning of coal's decline. And over the next 12 years, production drops. And the activity in Centralia and the nearby mining towns, because Centralia is not the only town in this valley that's trying to make a living off these coal seams. It's not even the only town in this region to have a long-running coal fire, which we'll also talk about. So by the time of the Great Depression, the only remaining company in the area went bankrupt, and the mines kind of abruptly cease operating. Now, they kept bootleg mining, though. Yes. All the mines were still there. They just weren't getting paid to mine them. So bootleg miners would come in, and one of the techniques that they would use in bootleg mines is this thing called pillar robbing. Can I talk about pillar robbing real quick? <laughs> You're doing great. Doing great. <laughs> Coal pillaring is basically you're underground. There needs to be something to hold up the roof above you. So you leave these gigantic weight-supporting pillars, okay? Now, what pillar robbing is, is, hey, I don't feel like digging down anymore. This pillar has coal in it. I'm going to pull it out of that. Now, what that winds up doing is collapsing the mines. Obviously, you're pulling the table legs out from under the table. Now, normally, people do this under, you know, as safe conditions as they possibly can. You know, the, when they feel it start to creep, they run. But... When you collapse a bunch of idle mines, you create a bunch of air pockets. Yes. And when you create a bunch of air pockets, that stuff's just waiting there for if, I don't know, a fire breaks. Yeah, it's it's a real house of cards under there after these bootleg miners get done. Oh, yeah. Um, and and that, was, that was not a short-lived time period. No. Either. They were going for until, like, what, the 1980s? They pulled tons and tons of coal out of the ground and they're doing it kind of on their own it's it it really is a bootleg like you're going in there with a wheelbarrow yeah. <laughs> you're bringing out a wheelbarrow load of coal you're heating up your own house over the winter you're going around to your neighbors and getting a couple bucks and they're not going to ask questions these guys who are bootlegging are just grabbing what they can they're not following any kind of map sure they're not keeping track of what they take and what they leave and if something collapses they just leave it now, even when the Lehigh Valley Coal Company closed down in 1929, um, the, the legitimate coal mining of it came back later on. Yep, because there's still coal there. Well, they were still mining until 1962. That's the thing. So there are conflicting sources on what happened to start the fire. Would you like to talk about the trash heap? I would love to. I did a deep dive on the trash heap. Go for it. Basically, they were using an old strip mine as a landfill. and <laughs> Which is, first of all, don't do that. Okay, the state of Pennsylvania says it's perfectly fine to do that as long as you seal the bottom of the pit. Yes. And you have to make sure that there are no holes in the seal. And you have to make sure that there's no like coal around the outcropping that can combust from the heat. And this is something that towns had done. So it wasn't like... It wasn't unheard of. It wasn't something they came up with on their own and kind of did in the middle of the night. To be accurate here, though, the state law said you could bury stuff, but the state law prohibits setting that stuff on fire. You can't set your dump on fire. It's just not a good idea. Generally, no. Generally, giant heaps of burning trash 
aren't great ideas. <laughs> Not on top of coal mines. And this was their creative solution to Memorial Day. They had a parade planned. Okay, so they wanted to clean up for Memorial Day. It's really unclear who decided to set it on fire, but the fire department was in on it. They were supervising. Yep. Uh, they did this really as safely as possible. Unfortunately, there is no safely as possible. <laughs> and this is where people really start to split hairs. They say, oh, the fire department let it go on for too long. It got too hot. It burned through the seal. And then other people say, nobody noticed that that mine was not completely played out and there was still coal on the surface. And also, by the way, there's a 15 foot hole in the side wall of the pit itself that was covered up by garbage so you couldn't tell so the fire gets out of control and they notice after they have put the fire out and soaked it really well for a few days that it's still smoking and that's when somebody says perhaps we have a problem well no nobody says that that's the problem nobody says that for quite some time nobody says that until our uh, our gas station man <laughs> Okay. People knew about the fire. People knew about the fire, but it wasn't a big deal. Because in the late 60s, a guy says, you know what? We need to contain this fire because if it gets in the seam, it could get under the town. And he offers to dig it out. So there's only there's really only one way to put out a coal fire. <laughs> so so hold on, because we got to back up there a little bit. Because we've got to go into the first 15 failed methods of shutting off the fire. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it's so it's it's so frustrating. Oh, it's so depressing. How many half measures are taken here? It's it's sort of the the you know my house isn't on fire, so why should I support the fire department? Kind of argument. Mm -hmm. They light they they light the dump on fire on May 27th, mm -hmm. and then they put it out with water. They notice that there are still flames two days later. So they put it out with water again. And then next week, right. there's more flames. So they put it out with water again. And then they think to themselves, wait a minute, it shouldn't still be burning after, you know, a week. So they use a bulldozer to kind of pull the garbage around so that they can douse more layers of it. Right. And that's when they notice that there's a 15-foot hole going through the north wall of the pit mm -hmm. that is basically, you know, a couple feet away from coal. Just coal. Just sitting there. Yep. And the church, the leader of the church, uh, is he, – he complains about a month later about a bad smell coming from the area. Mm-hmm. And through all of this, by the way, the Centralia Town Council is still telling people it's fine to dump your garbage into the pit. Well, it's just smoking a little. It's fine. It's totally fine. It's fine. So then one of the so then they're they're the president of their local union, okay, so the independent miners, breakermen, and truckers union, comes out to Centralia. He looks at it and he says, This is not this is not great. It's close to coal. Really what you want to do is you want to uh you want to dig it out. You just want to dig everything that you think might be on fire out of this pit here and and put it out on the surface, on dirt, so that it's not burning under the ground. Yeah, and let's uh, sidebar here for a second. That's the only way to eliminate coal fires. It's true. And there are, there are a lot of coal fires. There are like something like 15 or 16 coal fires going on in Pennsylvania at this time. So people know how to deal with them. They know that flooding the mine doesn't work, like as we saw from the from the fire department and the dump. Like if 
dousing it with water doesn't work. Yes. Uh, constructing barriers doesn't really work. The fire is always going to be able to pull down oxygen from the fissures in the rock, and it's always going to be able to keep going because anthracite is super flammable. A fire needs, you need oxygen, you need fuel, and you need the fire. Right. And when you're in a coal mine, you have virtually unlimited fuel. As soon as you introduce oxygen to that, you get a fire that can't go out. When they start talking about, oh, oh, we'll just flood it with water, the problem is that even when you submerge it, the coal still retains that heat. And and even if you do, the, the other thing that they'll do is they'll make a slurry out of crushed rock and water. And what that's supposed to do is it basically is supposed to plug up all the holes. But the problem is that, as we'll see in this case in Centralia, yep. it, it just doesn't work. So basically what you want to do when you even have the hint of a coal fire, the, the possibility of a coal fire, mm-hmm. is dig up the whole area right away. Mm. Get everything up to the surface. Just dig wide enough that it could not possibly have spread. Just dig it out. Exactly. And so this guy from the, the Miners, Breakerman, and Truckers Union comes there, looks at it, and says, listen, I'll dig that out with a steam shovel for 175 bucks." Now, I want you to think about that $175 figure. Oh, man. Basically, that's that's friend prices right there. That's, you know, because he's talking hours and hours of labor to dig this thing out. He's going to use his own equipment. Exactly. He's just coming by to do you. He's, he's being neighborly. He's doing you a solid. And they also bring in a mine inspector from Mount Carmel nearby who brings a bunch of gas detection equipment. The gases that are coming out of the ground have concentrations of carbon monoxide in them that you really only see in coal mine fires. Yep. And so everybody at this point knows that they have a coal mine fire. Now, they send a letter. The Centralia Town Council sends a letter to the Lehigh Valley Coal Company. They send what's called a formal notice of fire. And (laughs) they don't say how it got started, so the finger-pointing has already begun. Oh, man. So much finger pointing. Uh, in in this letter, and it's so frustrating because everybody is wasting time pointing fingers at each other when they need to be just digging up the mine. Mm-hmm. So the letter says that there is the starting of a fire, quote, of unknown origin during a period of unusually hot weather, end quotes. Can I just say I love the use of the passive voice there. Holy God. There was a starting of the fire. We don't know how this fire got started, but you know what? It did. And the weather was warm that day. Yep. That'll do it. So they call together the Lehigh Valley Coal Company executives, the Susquehanna Coal Company people, the deputy secretary of mines... Basically, all of them say that, uh, oh, God, it's going to cost way too much to dig this up. Yeah. The deputy secretary of mines basically says, well, the state needs to finance the cost of digging out the fire, which he estimates at about $30,000. Oh, that's another figure that makes me cry. Yeah. Now, $30,000 is roughly equivalent to 251000 modern dollars. Did you look that up? I did. <laughs> is it really? I looked it up. <laughs> Because I wanted to draw this. So we're, we're like, you know, for the price of a decent house, a really nice house, you could have dug up this fire. Oh, man. Now, this other guy comes mm-hmm. forward. Can we talk for a moment about Alonzo Sanchez? Of course. Okay. He's a wonderful figure. He's an interesting guy. So Alonzo Sanchez is 
He's a strip mine operator. At this time in Pennsylvania, he's he's developed this reputation for running around to different mining communities, offering to do services for them involving coal as long as he keeps the coal. Yeah, he's an entrepreneur. He is, and he's and he's being helpful. So he comes there and he says, I will dig out the mine fire for no charge. I will not charge you anything, but, but I want to keep any coal I recover without having to pay royalties to the Lehigh Valley Coal Company. There it is. There it is. So he wants to he wants to make a quick buck off of this, which honestly, to those of you out there who think, oh, what a scummy guy. No, no. He's kind of the hero right now. <laughs> the scummy goes far deeper than this dude. <laughs> like the coal, it goes deep into the ground. So the first thing that he wants to do is he wants to do what's called exploratory drilling, which is what you do when you have a mine fire. You drill a bunch of holes in a radius around where you think the mine fire is so you can tell how far it's spread. It's a pretty simple process. You dig these holes and then you put your gas spectrometers or your gas measuring devices over them and you try and see how much carbon monoxide is coming out of that hole. Mm -hmm. And if it's not the coal mine fire amount, <laughs> you've reached the end of it. So they tell him no. Right. They say, no, you know what? The, the legal mining rights are with the Lehigh Valley Coal Company. We can't do anything to endanger those mining rights. And the drilling is going to take too long. So they tell him no. Now, keep in mind, during this time, the, the fire in 1962 started in May, and we are now in August, okay? They are still sending miners down into the mines to mine coal. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, that's not great. They're not, they're not closed down. They're still sending guys down there. And I'm sure that these coal executives are just scrambling for rent right now, so they can't afford to have these mines shut down for, you know, something as trivial as safety. Oh. But they do make one concession. They send mine inspectors. Oh, I thought you were going to say canaries. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they, they might as well have. So they send mine inspectors down there on a daily basis to look for lethal levels of carbon monoxide. Not dangerous levels of carbon monoxide. Right. Lethal levels. So they're only going to shut down if it's going to kill you. And three days later, they hit that mark. So they do actually close the mines down. Yeah, and I think this is the end of mining under Centralia. Like, this is it. This is the end of legitimate mining under okay. Centralia. Because remember, for another 20 years, people are still going to go under there and you know, do this sort of guerrilla mining operations where they just run in and grab a wheelbarrow full and run out. But this is the end of formal mining. Can we say formal versus informal yes. mining? <laughs> so can we talk about the first uh, in the long lines of screw-ups after this point? Can I do a quick bullet point? Absolutely. Okay, quick bullet point. So the first thing that they try is they try to uh, authorize a project to deal with the mine fire this is, uh, again, in August, and they're going to open the project for bids two weeks later. So a company comes in uh, at a bid of $20,000 to excavate the mine fire. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody believes that the fire is very big or active because what they're doing is, remember, they're not allowed to drill. They're just looking at the steam coming up from rocks. Right. So they dig up, oh God, 200 feet outward. And the project is completely ineffective. There, there's nothing. Plus, 
<laughs> they breach a bunch of these subterranean mine chambers, which allows a bunch of oxygen to come in, yep. which makes the fire worse. So all of the things that they knew how to do to combat this, they didn't want to spend the money on doing, so they make the fire worse. Another thing is that the state law at the time actually wouldn't allow them to work the time needed on this. They were only allowed to work eight hours a day. Yeah, I yeah. heard something about that. It's it's insane. It's crazy. It's, yep, because you know the fire is only burning for eight hours a day, right? Right. It's a nine to five fire, guys. <laughs> It's on the clock. It goes home at the end of the day, just like you do. It punches yep. in, it punches out. So that project runs out of money and is done by October. So they decide we're going to flush the mine next, which is that crushed rock and water thing. Yep. They open that up for bidding <laughs> again. And another company comes in and they pour a bunch of water and rock and it does nothing. <sighs> so, and then they find out that the uh, not only has the project failed... But the fire has spread about 700 more feet. Mm. So the funding for that runs out. And then they decide what they're going to do is they're going to trench the fire. So they're going to dig a huge ring around the fire and fill the trench with incombustible material. They're going to fill it with rocks. They're going to fill it with ash. They're going to, you know, do all this. Well, the problem is that, um, gosh, nobody can come up with the money for it. So they dig a small trench in an incomplete circle around it and... That, and that, and that, that, of course, works great, and the fire is out. Except it isn't. It's still burning, because of course it doesn't work. We were so close. This is like the last point, I think, that it could have been contained. Because Absolutely. cutting a trench through the seam would have stopped the fire from getting into that network of mines under the town. It would have at least prevented it from doing the jumping that it's been doing. Because the problem is that anthracite coal especially can get so hot. These these fires can easily get over a thousand degrees. Yep. And when that happens, it crumbles the rock between the seams of coal. So what winds up happening is that the coal seams can jump from one to the other. And because of that, you know, you can't rely on the rock itself to slow the fire down. Yeah, it's it's fairly horrible. So uh, let's talk about what's going on in town while this is going on. Are we going to talk about our, our friend, the gas station owner? We are. He's the next person on my list. This story is horrifying and amazing. And, and I'm going to get out of the way and sit back in enraptured listening as you regale us with this story because it's amazing. Uh, it is horrifying and amazing. That is true. So to me, this is not as spectacular as what the fire is doing on the other side of town. Sure. But uh, people in Centralia are starting to be divided about this. They know there's a fire. They know that it has the potential to get a foothold under the town and start burning under the town. People are either extremely concerned or they're not concerned at all. You know, and this is a very human behavior when this a big disaster so happens. Yeah. It's you have a bunch of people who are like, guys, we need to deal with this right now. And then you have a bunch of people who don't want to deal with it right now. So their attitude towards it has to be this isn't as big a deal as you're making. Right. And you see this in contemporary interviews. Mm. These are people who worked in the mines, who understand coal mining, believe that the fire is contained or containable or that it's heading in the other direction. Yep. They believe that the town is built on solid rock. Yep. There's just a lot of different different kind of belief systems going on. And what starts to change people's mind is when the owner of the town's only gas station 
that goes to check on his gas. And he has underground tanks. He's checking the fuel level. But as he's doing that, he notices it's unusually warm. (laughs) Yes. And when he dips his thermometer in, it is warm to the point that it is extremely hazardous. He has to have the tanks drained and he has to close down his service station. Which, honestly... Let's be capital here for a minute. You, you, you missed a huge opportunity here, bud. You, you could have been the only purveyor of, you know, <laughs> Centralia flaming gasoline. It's toasted. <laughs> Thank you. I knew you'd come up with something. You've been putting cold gasoline in your car. Try warm. Try warm gasoline. Try 172 degree gasoline because that's the temperature in his tank. And that is just below the point where the fumes are going to start to combust. So... <laughs> As we see again and again in this story, Centralia really dodges a bullet here. Someone notices that in time, the gasoline gets drained, the service station gets shut down. There is no apocalyptic explosion. Right. And and the location of this gas station was fairly central. So if it had exploded, it would have been really bad. And this is what worries people because they know, because the gasoline is warm, (laughs) that the fire (laughs) is under the gas station. Yes, which means it's under the town. Right. And that starts to freak people out. Especially when people start passing out due to carbon monoxide poisoning. Right. And they start telling the state. And at this point, they're dealing with the Office of Surface Mining, the Department of the Interior, uh, the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Resources. They're writing to their congressman. They're writing to their representative. And nothing really happens until 1981. When our... Right. When our 12-year-old falls in the pit. This poor kid. He's an only child. And I watched an interview with him and his mother. And his mother was just like, I think about it all the time. I don't like to talk about it. I, I don't think there's any parent in the universe that can really comprehend. My kid went out walking through the backyard and almost fell into hell. Of his grandmother's house. Right? And he fell through the ground. You're supposed to be safe. Super close to falling 250 feet into an underground hell pit. Exactly. I mean, I don't know that you ever get over that. And one of the reasons why we decided not to name these people is because I read an interview with this boy later on. He's in his 50s now. He told the interviewer he had nightmares about this until he was well into his 30s. God. So I can't imagine how terrifying that must be to be walking along, to see a small hole in the ground, and to get swallowed up like that. And this... This incident makes the paper, of course, and it gets attention kind of nationwide. Yes. And at this point, their kind of letter writing campaign to these different bureaus and state officials really starts to get some traction. Uh, The Secretary of the Interior offers funding to fix this problem. Can we talk about the Red Book real quick? (laughs) Sure. Okay. So the Bureau of Mines commissioned this report in 1980 called Problems in the Control of the Centralia Mine Fire. What a great title. So they, they, they call this thing the Red Book, and this thing is, it is a textbook in, first of all, when bureaucracy fails people, when things get so hung up by bureaucratic reasons that people's lives are endangered, and a textbook in how not to deal with a mine fire. The money quote from it is, the measures used to date in attempts to control the fire have not been effective and in some cases may have influenced the propagation of the fire. Yep. So one of the the people that they interviewed, she went to her 
local officials because she was having headaches and dizzy spells and all this other stuff in her home. Yep. And they told her, well, this is probably a result of you smoking in your basement, which she doesn't do, and running your car in your garage, which she doesn't. She doesn't have doesn't. a garage. <laughs> I read this interview, too. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and it's this callous dismissal of people's people's lives are at stake here. And they're just like, nah, this is, this is, it's got to be something you're doing, which is a very classic example of what happens in these situations. You know, if you can't control the situation, you blame the people who get hurt by it. The government officials start having these town halls. And they don't go well. They do not because the people in Centralia know that they're getting screwed. Yes. And this is an urgent situation. Yeah. There is a fire under the town that needs to be dealt with or people are going to start getting sick. People are going to start dying. Houses are going to start caving in. Yeah. It's a terrible situation. I did want to tell you, um, the citizens group that's the most prominent, they use red ribbon to raise awareness. Yes. And they would tie it in tangles. They tie it in tangles on their porches. Yeah. I saw that. I kind of love that. So the residents are kind of divided. Uh, there's an impact zone, yep. which is where... They think the fire is. Uh, those people feel unsafe. They want the fire out. Yeah, uh, understandably. So you know, it's just a lot of a lot of red tape from this point. The government says we'd be happy to put the fire out, but we need to know exactly where it is. So let's do a borehole study. Yep. The town says that's great, but it's going to take you a year, a year and a half, and then at the end of the study, what are you going to do then? The government says, ooh. Gosh, we hadn't thought that far ahead. Well, not only that, but the Commissioner of Deep Mind Safety at the time has this great quote that says, imagine letting a forest fire burn for three years so you can study it. Yep. By the time you finish the study, it will have spread more. And this is a deep, deep fire. Parts of it are 300 feet under the surface. I mean, exactly. it's, it's not feasible to drill boreholes that deep. It's not feasible to let that sit for six months while you write a report and figure out what you want to do. Yep. They kind of do this thing that really strikes me as terrible where they offer people gas monitors. And at first they're saying, okay, you keep it for 30 days and then pass it along to your neighbor. What? <laughs> what? Okay. Uh, they also advise people to get parakeets. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. The idea is that if your bird gets sick... <laughs> You know the air quality in your house has gone down. Was canaries too on the nose for them? <laughs> I think it might have been. Are you kidding me? They advise people to keep their windows open. They advise pregnant women and infants move away from the affected areas. Uh, but they also say that people can live with gas emissions. They say, you know, coal miners breathe these in all the time. Yeah, and they're fine. So it's not it's not a huge deal. Oh, my God. So this really kind of creates a conflict within the community. Yeah. And you have to remember, at this time, Centralia is a full-on community. It is. Two churches. They have four cemeteries. People work there. They have restaurants and bars. They have an elementary school. They have a convent. Uh, they have a baseball field. This is just like an ordinary, all-American small town. Yeah. And a lot of residents have been born and raised in their houses. And, and a lot of families have, you know, generations going back. It's very, very tight-knit. And it also has to do with property value. Yes, because if you live over coal, your town has a certain amount of value. If all of a sudden you are told, you know, that that coal is no longer valued coal, your your home is no longer worth much. And when the government 
does start to offer people money for their houses, relocation benefits. Yeah. And offers to buy their houses as part of their kind of eminent domain package. What they get offered is usually less than half of the home value. Yeah. And these are people who have sunk their entire lives into their house. And the government isn't buying these houses to renovate them and turn into some magnificent Airbnb. No, they're they're buying them to knock them down. <laughs> they're buying them to knock them down. And if you are living in the middle of a row house yeah. and your neighbors get knocked down, what does that do to your house? Well, it weakens your walls significantly. So in 1983, um, finally the U.S. Congress gets involved. Yes. They allocate this huge amount of, of 1983 money, $42 million to relocate people. Oh, it's our best effort yet. It is. And so what winds up happening is about a thousand of them take the offer and leave. Yep. 500 houses are knocked down. Seven years later in 1990, the census records that there's only 63 people living in Centralia. Yep. So that takes care of the people who weren't being taken care of. That takes care of the woman who's told that, you know, it's her fault for running her car in her garage, which she does not have. What it does not take care of are the concerned citizens groups that have the the conspiracy theory. Can we talk about the Mammoth Vane <laughs> conspiracy theory? So at first, when I read about this conspiracy theory, I was like, oh, that's crazy. But the more you read about it, the more convincing it seems i think the thing is is that as with all conspiracy theories they do tend to rely on uh the fact that there is an absence of proof gets confirmed as proof but they they do have a, a bunch of things right do you want to do you want to just yeah they're not wrong about the big thing <laughs> they're not wrong about the big thing so let's go over what the big thing is the big thing is that commonwealth of pennsylvania takes over mining rights when a township dissolves. Yes. Uh, so if Centralia was to be completely abandoned, if the town stopped functioning completely, then whatever coal remains under Centralia belongs to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Which can then turn around and sell those mining rights for a lot of money to a mining company. And I think what I like to picture is that this is when they come in with the... $500 million they need to dig it out and completely stop the fire. Sure. And then they get back to work mining out all the remaining anthracite coal that's down there. Sure. But you don't think that's that's accurate, huh? So the problems with this are a couplefold. <laughs> because I love this. Like, the government has done nothing but screw people over. <laughs> that's true. Throughout this whole story. And that's why it makes this so easy to sell. It makes so much sense to me at this point. Yeah. It's true. And not just here, but there are other coal fires going in Pennsylvania, one of which actually had something like this happen where they didn't move everybody out, but they basically claimed eminent domain so they could clean up the coal fire. Right. And then miraculously a month later, the mining rights that had been, you know, very okay for the people in the town get sold to another company and bah, it's awful. That's just God saying he wants the coal company to be a little bit richer. I hate that argument. And <laughs> so here's the thing. So whenever there is an economic and environmental disaster like this, the governmental response needs to be swift, it needs to be transparent, and it needs to have an effect. So when you take 
this sort of triple approach of deny that there's a problem, only use half measures to solve the problem, and be complacent, you're going to get conspiracy theories. Mm. It's really, really hard to argue against if they had just gone, you know, oh, here's your 175 bucks guy with the steam shovel. Please dig this out right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, Centralia had a three-day-long coal fire, but it's under control now, you know? But they didn't. They had to put things up for bid, and then the fire spreads, and all this other stuff. So incompetence and complacence. It's the studies that kill me. Yeah, the studies are ridiculous. We're just going to need to take three years to study this, and then we'll have a solution for you. Sure. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. No. That is three strikes. You're right. The main thrust of this theory refers to the mammoth vein. This sort of almost mythical, huge vein of anthracite coal that runs right under the town and by some estimates is the largest vein of anthracite coal in the United States. This thing is huge. It is, to turn a phrase, mammoth. (laughs) The OSM says that according to their maps, the mammoth has been mined out. There's no coal left in there. Local residents who remember were doing this sort of guerrilla mining when they weren't supposed to say there's still coal in there. Mm -hmm. So The town of Centralia owns the mineral rights under the town, and it has this ordinance that prohibits deep mining within the borders of the town. So anybody who wanted to mine the mammoth, if the coal was still there, would have to get around this ordinance. If the town ceases to exist, the rights to the coal revert to the county, which then revert to the state. And the state has the power to take the remaining structures and parcels of land by eminent domain and then can lease the land to a coal company, okay? That's the main thrust and the main problem. My heart goes out to these people because they're screwed no matter what they do. If they move out to save their lives, they lose the coal. And if they stay for the coal, they can die. That was very nice. Thank you. They're losing their history. Mm -hmm. They're losing their family lands. But they're not just losing the coal. They're losing their homes, their community, their history, their families. And the the other thing, oh, this is one of those like marked by fate kind of things. Mm -hmm. The church in the town is still standing. It's still having services. The church, it is. They're still... As of right now, we're, we're recording this in December of 2020, there are still six people living in Centralia, and they go to church, and they're paying taxes. They have a functioning government. They are paying taxes. <laughs> they have a town government. They have a budget. Which was in the black this past year. <laughs> but the thing is, is that the the church and the graveyard, the main graveyard in town, are both sitting on bedrock. So no matter how much of the town burns down and falls through the ground around them, those two sites will still stand. That graveyard, by the way, you may remember from the beginning of this story, because that graveyard was the one that started to smell bad right before Memorial Day. So they burned the trash so it wouldn't smell bad for Memorial Day. Yep. The conspiracy theory guys also got a huge leg up by this community meeting that happened in April of 80 or 81. So these two consultants come into town and they offer to buy the entire town, house by house, right? Everything. 
And not only are they going to buy up the entire town, but they're going to pay twice the market value for every residence and give each person in the town a moving allowance. Oh, you're kidding. Right? Isn't that deal? My spidey sense is all over the place there. Right? But that's a great deal. I am suspicious. The people started to say, well, what company are you, uh, are you representing? And the consultants would not answer. Not a good sign. Not great. And the consultants were never heard from again. And so what winds up happening is the conspiracy theorists start running with that. Mm. You get why you would believe in this. Because if you have been slapped by every official person when you're asking for help, you start to suspect that maybe they don't want you to get help. I think the other attractive thing about that is that it suggests that the fire is not as bad as the government says it is. Right. And that's the other thing, is that remember that other pillar of conspiracy theory of it's not as bad as you're telling me it is. Mm -hmm. There has been such an incompetent response to this, and there have been, I think calling them governmental overreaches is a little too far, but very, very forceful governmental approaches since 1990. Yeah, it's kind of a mix of not caring at all and then caring way too much. I don't even think it's caring too much. I think it's not caring at all for very, very long and then like kicking them for complaining about it. Because what happens in 92 is the Pennsylvania governor declares eminent domain on the property. Which governor is that? Is that Kerry? That's Bob Casey. Ah. So Bob Casey essentially condemns all the buildings. And immediately the residents that are left, because remember, there's still about 60 people in town. They mount a legal challenge to that. Mm -hmm. That fails badly. And what winds up happening when eminent domain is declared, you really don't get much for your home. No, you just get evicted. And so what winds up happening is in 2002, the whole town gets evicted. Because the U.S. Postal Service revokes its zip code. Yep. There are still people living there, and they have to pick up their mail at the next town over. And remember, the highway is closed down because you're, you know, you're a condemned town. Yep. In 2009, the governor then starts the formal eviction, and there's still a, a handful of people living there. And they're starting to get this sort of, I'm going to call it the stupidity campaign, waged against them. Mm. Not only are they sitting there trying to point out that, that their government has failed them, this isn't exactly a, a thing that could not have been handled if people had just handled it. Mm -hmm. Lots of stuff starts being spread around about, oh, look at these dumb people. Look at how stupid these guys are. They won't even leave when their house is on fire. So in July of 2012, their last appeal fails. And so the eminent domain proceedings are upheld and they're ordered by the state to leave. Mm-hmm. So in 2013, finally, they kind of win one. The, the local officials in the town, because remember, they still have their town government. They're still collecting taxes. They still have a fire truck. Yes, they do. I love that. They don't have an ambulance anymore. <laughs> they had to give it away. But they got the fire truck. They still have a fire truck. And it's a nice fire truck. I've seen pictures of it. It's like a cool, classic fire truck. Yeah. So they reach an agreement with the state and local officials. Basically, the seven people still living in Centralia are allowed to live out the rest of their natural lives there. Yep. After which, the rights of their properties are taken through eminent domain. So they're not sending in the state troopers and rousting people out of their homes. They're saying, fine, 
You want to live in this town that is no longer a town, no longer essentially recognized by the United States of America as being part of it, go right ahead. And honestly, when that starts to feel like a win, it's hard to tell how much you've lost. It's really heartbreaking. Basically, the government is waiting for people to die. And then do what, though? Because this is the thing. I swear to God, if we come back to this in a couple of years, after the last resident does pass away, and it's like, oh, hey, we put out the Centralia mine fire, and now we're mining a bunch of coal (laughs) out of there, I'm going to call up and formally apologize to that conspiracy theory guy. I hate this so much because... It's what makes this story really difficult. Yeah, because there's such a human cost here. And basically, the people who chose to remain in town have been completely disenfranchised. Yeah. They're still operating on their own, but they're completely independent. I read an interview that said, with one woman that said that um, she doesn't feel like an American citizen anymore. She doesn't consider herself an American citizen. And why should she? Because, I mean, her country gave up on her. It's that whole thing of, you know, as Americans, we're supposed to be independent. We're supposed to take care of things on our own and pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. But there's also this sense of neighborhood, you know? It's like if, if your neighbor's house is on fire, you don't just lock your door. You you see if you can help. And right. in this case, all of these neighbors got let down. And that's on that's on everybody, you know? That's It's an incredibly sad situation, yeah. The mine fire itself, conservative estimates put it at burning for another 100 years. 250 was the number that I saw. One of the reports I saw said it's probably going to go for another 250. You know, I guess it depends on whether or not the mammoth really is down there. It's it's still spreading. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick detour and talk about the town of Burnsville. Did you run into Burnsville? Oh, man. I did, and I it's a really unfortunate name. I apologize. It is. Though. It's B-Y-R-N-E-S-V-I-L-L-E, just to be clear. Um, but Burnsville is this town a few miles south of Centralia, and it's gone now. The entire town has been abandoned and leveled because yep. the mine fire extended beneath it. And that's it. Everybody's gone. There is no more Burnsville. Just like soon there will be no more Centralia. It's a pretty sad story. The tone deafness around this has been astonishing because not only is it emerging now as like a tourist spot for disaster tourists. Oh, can we take a sidebar there? This is so exasperating. I just watched a whole bunch of videos of people on YouTube going into Centralia and it's so frustrating walking the streets, pointing out foundations, looking at the remaining structures, uh, looking at the graffiti on the graffiti highway. Uh, But, you know, there's a reason why it's blocked off. Yeah, it's not safe. (laughs) And it's not just because it's dangerous. People are still living there. It's still somewhat a community. Yeah, it's still their home. I I can't imagine how bad that would feel to have people walking around in my neighborhood pointing at my house going, can you believe people still live here? Yeah, and... And by the way, if you have if you have a little time to spend, um, the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection Bureau of Abandoned Mine Reclamation, our heroes, holy cow, <laughs> they have this whole thing on the Centralia Mine Fire. If you just Google the Centralia Mine Fire, Pennsylvania EPA, you will be able to find it. And it is, on the one hand informative sort of on the other hand there's some kind of insulting stuff in here 
you got to remember, they're in charge of keeping track of the fire at this point. Yeah. They're the bureau that is tasked with going out there and monitoring the soil. Yep. You know, checking the boreholes, seeing what horrible gases are coming out. <laughs> you know, checking hell for its sulfur content. <laughs> exactly. I think they get a little carried away with the, with the data. So here's the thing. The, the, the most informative part of this is, is a frequently asked question. Oh, yay. And I'm just going to pull a few of them because they're all the same answer. So if the question is, why can't the Centralia mine fire be excavated? The answer is, it could, but it's too expensive. How can we put out the Centralia mine fire? Oh, we can, but it's too expensive. How big is it now? It's really hard to tell because it's too expensive. How fast is it moving? We don't know because it's too expensive. We need money. It all boils down to a bunch of questions that are basically like, hey, is any of this safe? No, none of it's safe. And hey, can we actually put this fire out? Yes, we could, but it costs too much money. The literal quote here, this is my favorite quote on the whole thing. Quote, however, the cost for this type of project is currently beyond the capacity of Pennsylvania's abandoned mine reclamation project to address. End quote. Yeah, it's really simple math at the bottom. They're looking at the value of Centralia and they're saying... And they're saying it doesn't have any. And right now, what the Pennsylvania state is telling them is that it's just not worth it to us to help you. And that is horrible. Yeah, that is the worst part of the story to me. And, you know, when you look at the story of Centralia, all I see is a bunch of narrow misses. Yeah. We have the kid who falls in the hole. We have a guy who gets out of his car and then watches his car sink underground. Sink into the ground, yes. We have, like... A lot of cases of carbon monoxide building up in houses and people realizing just in time and getting out. I, I love the story of uh, apparently there was a resident who was uh, sitting and having their evening cigarette and they realized that their lighter wasn't sparking. Oh boy. So they went outside and their lighter sparked <laughs> and they realized that their house was full of carbon monoxide and like, oh my God, talk about close misses oh god i mean if there's any positive to be taken from it it's yes the, yeah the, were there any fatalities it's really unclear so there are people who left town and had long-term health problems and that's the other thing yeah long-term exposure to carbon monoxide will absolutely wreck you mm -hmm. actual deaths on site i don't think there were any nope no, I, like I said, that uh, 1981 incident where the kid falls into the sinkhole is like the big kind of Centralia story. It's the story you come across when you first start researching. Yeah, yeah. and it is a big – it is sort of the big attention grabber. I, I personally like I, – I really prefer the, uh, the, the, you know, our homemade hot gasoline story. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, whatever floats everybody's boats. I, I That's do what love... I would have nightmares for. Right? It's like, imagine being the people pumping their gas at that moment. Like, Can you imagine sticking your hand in there and going, why is it so warm down there? Oh, God. Yeah, the... Oh. All right, I'm just going to end on this quote here from 1981. The Office of Surface Mining Spokesman. Quote, we will continue to respond to emergencies, but we have no plans to fight the fire any further. Mm -hmm. Our experts believe it will burn itself out. End quote. So 
for this episode, because we are talking about something so recent, we won't be doing our standard advice for time travelers. All right, well, we've come to the end of a thoroughly depressing uh, relative disaster. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disaster. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange and dangerous event from history and our finest advice for dealing with it. Uh, so Greg, my brother, has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? We are going to go to the beautiful South American country of Poyez. Excellent. And we're going to learn how, one, tons of people died there, and two, it never existed. All right, looking forward to talking to you about that one.